Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. I just happened to really just come across this article that said if we were to continue to produce food in the same way that we did today, that we would essentially run out of arable landmass by the year 2050. And it hit me really hard that I was planning to be alive at that time. And I was like, it, it feels like somebody should be working on this right now. So I started looking for companies that were working on, on solving this problem and figuring out a better way to both grow and distribute food and uh, do it as, as efficiently as we could with what we know about physics today. Hi, I'm Tim Troop Noonan, your host for the In the Mix series at Horsepower to Hyperloops, where we talk with newsmakers and innovators across the Kettering community. And that was Brian Falther, talking about his senior year at Kettering in 2010. Ten years after Falther's graduation, he has been at the forefront of an industry which has learned to increase crop production as much as a hundredfold per acre. We spoke recently, and I began by asking him how a college senior with no agricultural experience sets out on a mission to feed the world. Brian Falther, thank you for joining us today. You're a Kettering class of 10, and you've spent a considerable time in sort of the innovative end of agriculture, or the future of agriculture, since uh, you got out in the last 10 years. You're doing mm -hmm. some, starting to do some different things now, but I wanted to learn a little bit more about that and that field. So tell us a little bit about an overview of, of where you've been and where you've been most recently in that field. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. I I would say, so I started looking into what would be called controlled environment agriculture. In 2010, I was actually still at school when I started exploring some of these ideas. Uh, in a couple of my classes, we had like entrepreneurship across the curriculum, I think was what it was called. There was a few classes where I was already looking into how to grow things and how to use technology to do that. I set out to find and join whoever was, was on that adventure. And what I discovered is that there were not very many people doing this. And as a result, I thought that I would try and <laughs> just start learning and start building. And I kind of turned my basement into this like sort of like mad scientist lab of, of growing all these different plants. So some of my friends that couldn't remember visiting me would remember I had like hops growing and strawberries and tomatoes and basil and lettuce and all kinds of different plants and different types of systems. And then from there, like I really started thinking about what I had been exposed to in the manufacturing industries and in, in automotive and as a result of going to Kettering and thought that, hey, why don't we just take the notion of an assembly line, apply that to food production and grow plants in a like a massive warehouse. And that was really the genesis of the idea. And that was about the time at which I met my co-founders, Irving and David, and we set out to start building Bowery as a, as a company in 2015. And things have been continuing to, to grow ever since. Well, now, you're a mechanical engineer, not a botanist. That's uh, right. You know, yeah. a lot of it obviously, you had to learn a lot of this stuff. But my understanding, would it be fair to call it 
vertical farming with a lot of uh, innovative technologies. Is that would that be fair to say? Yeah, we call it, we just call it modern farming, and that's how we think about it. It's like okay, like if we were just able to farm and design a farming system from scratch with the technology that we have today, what would be the best version of that? And it happens to to utilize a lot of robotics and integration with software and computer vision and machine learning and, and all these wonderful technologies that we can kind of combine together. And that's sort of where I came in was as a, as a systems engineer, thinking about how do all these different disparate systems connect to each other in a way that allows the entirety of the system to continue to function. So integrating lights and plumbing and all kinds of hydroponic pipes to, to valves and getting everything to operate in the way that we want to, like a machine. Well, so am I not correct that an acre of that kind of farming, and I'm sure there's many different varieties, but an acre there produces a vast amount more or can than an acre of typical farmland. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I think the figure that we've we've used in the past has been it's about a hundred times more productive per square foot per year compared to traditional farming. Well, so I could produce or you could produce in a five acre building mm-hmm. the same as somebody else could do on a five hundred acre farm. Am I right. correct? Yeah, that's those are those are very rough, but yes, that's the general like order of magnitude shift between farming and indoor farming. So what accounts, obviously, some of the technologies, but I also understand you're farming up. I know that in the 1990s, somebody wrote a paper on a 50-story building and farming all the way up. The verticality of farming, not necessarily 50 stories, but at least allows for some of that increase in production. Am I correct? Yeah, it does to some extent. And that's something that we always balance when we're thinking about designing that type of system. And and when I was there, they have a different game plan at this point. But we think about the trade-offs and we think about the structure of the buildings that we're looking to utilize and and how they best fit our system. Some work and some just don't. And so we've sort of come up with our own proprietary way of going about evaluating real estate. And it's part of the puzzle. But it doesn't drive everything, I would say. So what if I, and this may not be the right way to think about it, if we are at a point where we're, we're producing whatever the number is, many, many times more produce or agriculture per acre than a standard farmland, and the verticality is, is one factor, what among the technologies or systems or techniques are some of the other contributors to this increase in production? Yeah, I think like if you just zoom out for a little bit, it's greater control over the growing environment. So for instance, the the best analogy for this is that farmers today that grow traditionally outside rely on the one thing that they can't control, which is the weather. And so what we essentially do is we strive to control the weather inside a enclosed system that allows us to provide a bit more consistency for the plants to optimize for how well they grow and how how they taste and all the attributes that we're, we're measuring and using it as a way to analyze how well our, our crops are producing. And so we, we think of all these little things as kind of like levers and you sort of just track the levers that you pull or buttons that you push and then correspond that with the output of the system for the crops that we've grown. 
And you can kind of tie that back and then start to like learn from that. So then it's just like iterative cycles. And that's one thing that we can do really well is just continue to iterate on the way to grow a plant in a way that field farmers just can't because they can't do it fast enough and they don't have the conditions to do it all year round. Well, now hunger and agriculture and famine and soil depletion are different issues in different parts of the globe. It's one thing to talk about doing this in a fairly technologically advanced society like ours. And it's another to do it in some of the more third world regions, perhaps in Africa or other places. We've got a lot of problems with, as you you started out talking about, we're going to run out of food, soil depletion. A lot of people don't understand that, you know, the soil is getting depleted all over the world. And that doesn't have to happen if we do it correctly. What kind of an answer is this to these sorts of problems? Is this the future or is this a small thing that might make some improvements here or there? How how do we think about this new kind of agriculture as it relates to some of these massive global problems? Yeah, I definitely think it's underestimated and undervalued for what the, the total potential is for these types of systems. I think it's worth noting like how how early it is. And like, these are still like very early, like prototype systems that I think will continue to evolve over time in a way that the cost of LEDs is going to continue to drop as the efficiency goes up. And so we have certain drivers that over the course of the next five, 10 years plus are going to make some significant changes in the way that we think about how these systems operate, just because they, they're, they're super cheap and they are much more efficient than they are today. So I think like what we're going to see is a, is a sort of transposition of learning how to build these systems here in, in the more developed countries. And then I think the third world countries are actually kind of lucky because they get to leapfrog in a lot of ways with technology, right? So they went straight from like no communication to smartphones. And then I think there will be something similar to that. They'll have like fully baked systems that we get there and and they're operating they work and i think we're going to see a lot more different crops being grown as this technology continues to mature as well so a lot of people say this is just lettuce for rich people you know that's something that we hear a lot lettuce works i mean lettuce works like right out of the gate and a lot of leafy greens do so uh, that's why all the other companies and, and why we're Bowery's looking at leafy greens. But of course, we're going to get into things like fruiting crops. Everybody's looking into that. Everybody wants to do tomatoes, strawberries and peppers and cucumbers. And then we need to think about proteins and getting into protein sources. And there are certainly ways that we may be able to do that with these types of systems too, that we just haven't quite explored yet. When you got out of Kettering, you looked around and not many people were doing it. Somebody gets out today, 10 years later, 2020, and looks around would they come to the same answer? Or would they say, well, there's some people doing it. There's a whole lot of people doing it. What's changed since then? And where do you think it'll look like in terms of the energy, the activity, the growth of this sector in the next 20, 30 years? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but just yeah. what, how much is it growing and, and how much will it grow? Yeah. So certainly the number of entrants into the industry has grown exponentially from when I started. And that's been really interesting to kind of see all these interesting projects that sort of rhyme with a lot of the early attempts that 
people were working on about 10 years ago, but they're just learning for themselves in a new form factor. I would say we're definitely going to see more of a consolidation towards bigger players in the industry because it's just an industry that thrives at economies of scale. And when you get to the ability to capitalize a much, much larger system, you inherently build some moats around what you're you're doing from other people that are getting into the space, both from just developing the system itself and having one and, and building it, but also like the data and the information and all of the tribal knowledge that you gain having gone through the process of developing that sort of thing. So I think like we're going to see a few larger companies, I would say, start scaling in the next two to three years and start building farms in areas where more people are going to recognize that these are coming from indoor grown farms in a way where it's still kind of novel. So Brian, what's the farthest trajectory of this kind of uh, farming and this kind of activity? Yeah, I think I think the technology will will follow humanity. So I think like this is going to go to colonization on the moon, on Mars. It could be in like some sort of like orbital Leo sort of hotels of sorts. There's all kinds of like different ways that we can think about like where to build these systems so that they're able to provide uh, food and sustenance to people no matter where they are, whether it's here on Earth or otherwise. And I think that that's the direction that it's going to be heading. Maybe over the next two to three decades or so. Wow. So uh, these projects that NASA are doing, they're, they're, they're working on the International Space Station. They're getting setting up a place on the moon as a waypoint to get to Mars where they'll presumably set up a colony. It could come into play in all those areas. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. And I hope it does too. I think it'd be, be nice to have like a crunchy salad on the moon rather than like something that's freeze dried and squirted out of a tube. Wow. My favorite Martian meets Green Acres to quote two 1960s television shows. Yeah, there you go. And could you build a farm like this in say Iceland, i.e. someplace that's not normally hospitable? Could you build it anywhere? I'm, I'm thinking of the indoor ski slope that they have in Dubai. Can you put this anywhere or are there some limitations as regard to climate and so on? Yeah, I would say like there are certainly locations that make a lot more sense to do other things than grow food there. Like the desert is a great example, right? People do need food for the desert, but it actually might be more efficient to harvest solar power there and transport electricity to where the food's being grown rather than grow the food there and transport that. So there's like different ways of thinking about within the system of producing the product, where that happens and like how that fits with what the needs are. I think the big thing to think about is like, you'll need a water source and you will need some sort of energy source. These, these farms take a lot of electricity and eventually that'll be completely solar. But for now, like it would be a very large solar installation to run something like that, which could work. Would you say that some of the worst case scenarios regarding soil depletion, hunger, famine that people have projected for 25 or 30 years or even less will be significantly or somewhat impacted by this new form of agriculture? Yeah, I mean, I hope significantly, right? Like I, that's, that's my optimistic side of me is that we'll figure out a much more efficient way to produce the amount of food we need. Like if you think about it, like, 
the demand for meals per day is like over 22 billion meals per day. I don't think there's any way we're close to hitting that right now. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done regardless. I know that Bowery made a point of saying it was raising non-genetically engineered produce and agriculture, but are there people can, I mean, there's a lot of genetic engineering going on as some of these major corporations wanted to raise genetically engineered products in this way. Mm. They could do that as well, could they not? They could, yeah. I mean, this is just really just kind of a growth system. So it's essentially a, a different way to set up a, a greenhouse, but indoors in a warehouse. And you can grow anything in there. You could you could grow trees if you wanted to, it just wouldn't be you know the best use of, of space inside at this point. Well, last question, and I, I keep trying to get my head around this idea. Sure. I don't know how many acres or how they even measure farmland in the U.S. Mm. My uh, guess would be that the, you know, this would be a small fraction of a percent currently, certainly in terms of used space, but if you measure it in terms of output, maybe a, a fraction more, but still very tiny. Do yes. you think, say in this country or in the world, that this kind of farming will represent a significant percentage, perhaps even the greater percentage, 10, 20, 50 years in the future? Or is this always destined to remain a, a small sliver of what's done? No, I think it'll I think it'll continue to increase the breadth of products that are able to be grown in it over time. Lettuce is like it's profitable now. I think we're looking at getting into like just thinking about the whole produce section of the grocery store. How much of that should be captured in in this sort of growing system versus others and thinking about other factors at play too. I think one thing that a lot of people don't consider is potentially converting farmland into hardwood forestation in order to continue to sequester carbon more quickly. As a result, like land value could increase for farmers, and then we could move that product closer to the city and grow it indoors where it would normally be grown outside. And of course, that's what we need to, to replenish the soils is the carbon dioxide, correct? Yeah. yeah. Well, carbon dioxide will come from the air for the plants. Right. But a lot of the nutrients like the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and micronutrients will be as a result from decomposition of products and stuff like that. Well, Brian, I appreciate this sort of quick overview of, of a fascinating industry because it seems to me this is going to be a point of massive change just when you drive across this country and look at the amount of farmland somewhere between New York and Los Angeles and how this could impact that. Maybe there's more reforestation and, and mm. so on. So, Thank you for your points of view, and that has been really terrific, and I appreciate it. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.